All right, folks, welcome to another episode of Pearl Snap Tactical, Season 2. I'm your host, Mark, and I'm joined by the ex- uh, now Dr. Alex. Doctor, uh, thank you. Yeah, hey, how's everybody doing? I'm doing a lot better now that I'm done with school. <laughs> you're doing a lot better now school's done Ooh. and you're graduated, right? So, yeah. A lot better. Yeah, so uh, those of you who caught episode, or the first episode of the season, noticed that at the time, Alex was just getting ready to graduate chiropractic school. So he has since graduated. So we went up and saw him and got to hang out with some of your other friends and family and and had a grand time seeing you uh, on your accomplishments. So congratulations once again. Well, thank you, sir. And also, I'm super stoked because you're back home now. So you're not living up in, back in uh, Arkansas. Yeah, back in Arkansas. So anyway, we're super pumped about that. So anyway... Um, and soon you'll be uh, you'll be working adjusting people, making sure we're all healthy, and uh, I hope to be at the top of that list. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I'm just saying, I know a guy that that needs uh. some help with his neck. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So today we got a pretty cool show that we're going to delve into. Today we're going to be talking about CQB, otherwise known as Close Quarters Battle. And it is rife with uh, its own sense of controversy. I'll tell you what, the fa- I have learned over the years, if, uh, if you really want to kick a hornet's nest, all you got to do is post something about CQB and you'll get about 20, 30 dudes telling you what you're doing wrong. Uh, yeah, and, uh, no, you're an idiot. Yeah, no, you're an idiot. <laughs> so, uh, and so, so that we don't run afoul on that, there's a couple things. We'll just very quickly run through, not our whole bio, they can catch that on the website, but at least... <laughs> Our experience with the world of CQB, where get this out of a crackerjack box, and then um, and then we'll define our parameters of the discussion because you you know we could spend we could make a whole podcast series just on this topic. It's very deep. So most of you by now know, uh, military wise, I'm an infantryman. Our mission of the infantryman is to uh, close with and destroy the enemy by means of fire maneuver. Close quarter battle is part and parcel of that. So my current position, I'm an infantry instructor at a schoolhouse, and CQB is one of the things that we that we touch um, that we touch on and instruct on. So that's that's kind of what I do. So it's something that I've experienced as an infantryman coming up, learning, training it, and I teach it as well. Uh, what about you? Uh, I was in 75th Ranger Regiment for a while, and uh, CQB is kind of their bread and butter. So uh, we did two things in Ranger Battalion. Well, we did a lot of things in Ranger Battalion, but our two main focuses were uh, airfield seizure and night raids. So those two things were what we spent the majority of our time training and doing. So, uh, yeah, I've got a pretty good little knowledge base of uh cqb tactics so when you talk about night raids yeah go ahead uh what go ahead finish your thought oh it's gone now okay (laughs) (laughs) never never to be captured again all right that's my special skill um i can make people forget stuff um no but when you talk about night raids so night raids that too there's a lot of different things when you talk about raids you know raids are a particular type of uh mission i guess as you will that right so it's you know all forces we get tasked with but like you guys in particular when you talk about night raids what does that fundamentally mean so according to i'll give you the textbook definition it's a 
uh, surprise attack on a fixed position or installation ending, ending in a planned withdrawal. So okay. you go in, you hit a compound, uh, bad guy spot, training camp, any of that, and then you attack it under the cover of darkness and using the element of surprise. And then we pull out on uh, a planned withdrawal route or withdrawal sequence. That's okay. the textbook definition of a not raid. All right. Awesome. I like it. All right. So now let's discuss our, we're going to define for the purposes of this discussion, what CQB is and, you know, and what it's not. And then really kind of honing down our parameters. Cause like I said, we wrote a, a series of articles that are up on the website that you could check it out at baritasdefense.com. And it's an article, right? It's a 30,000 foot view of this topic. So there were a lot of comments of people, um, you know, saying, well, what about, you know, delayed entry or limited penetration or if civilians, would they even want a room clearing? You know, should what if they should even go and clear the room and maybe they should just call the cops? And even at the outset, I said, look, we're not going to discuss the the uh, why you might want to do something or when or if it's just the principles, speed, surprise, violence of action, those are the things that are the, the elements of CQB. And then what that looks like, whether or not you get the decision that you're going to do it. I mean, those are outside the scope of the article and they're outside the scope of our discussion for today, right? Right. We're and just going to hold gonna on use, these elements. Yeah. So during our example in our discussion today, we're going to use a room clearing scenario as our close quarters battle scenario or CQB scenario. Uh, that way we can talk through the elements. Um, but I, we shouldn't get like focused on this is just room clearing CQB and room clearing are the same thing. Synonymous. They're not. They're exactly completely different. Room clearing is a piece of CQB just like squad attack is another piece of CQB. I like that. Yeah. You said that like room clearing is a scenario. So there are many scenarios, but I find that most people, when you bring up the topic of CQB, they think, oh, you're going in and, and clearing a house or clearing a, a structure a or structure. a building. Right. And that can be what you're doing it, but it doesn't have to be. So close quarter battle is a big thing. I mean, you can do CQB outside. Right. You can do CQB. Um, you don't have to be in a house. So let's go ahead and kind of get our working definition of what CQB is so that people kind of see where our, where our heads are out. So, you know, me, I would define and this is what I define in the article that I wrote that's up on the website, that CQB is the physical confrontation between two or more combat combatants. So as the name implies, it takes place in close proximity and it can be different ranges, right? Right, and, and I, would I would say within sight and sound. Yes, yeah. So even you can, so going back to our room clearing instance, you can be clearing your room and then come out of a door to the outside that opens up into an alleyway that's 100 meters long or whatever at that distance, and I would still would consider that CQB, right? Right. I, I would too, Yes. Yeah, because the elements that you're going to be utilizing are are the same, right? And that Correct. we're going to get into a little bit. So, you know, long hallway. So 
we want to try to, we're going to be talking about rooms and structures because I think that's a very easy go-to to use for an example, but it's very important that people don't get high center on just room clearing. Cause like you said, room clearing is just a scenario. It's not, you know, right. Um, well, CQB stands for close quarters battle. It doesn't say, Hey, it's close quarters battle in a room or it's close yes. quarter battles in a field or the woods or wherever yeah. you may be. So let's not get pigeonholed into just thinking it's talking about room clearing. These are the elements right. of CQB as a whole. Right. As a discipline. Yeah. So all room clearing is CQB, but not all CQB is room clearing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What square is not a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. Right. You know? <laughs> hey, I don't know. That sounds good to me. Let's, let's, let's just roll with it. All right. So now that we've established that, let's go into uh, what these elements are or the, the principles, right? So why don't you rattle What are the three principles of close quarter battle? Uh, speed, surprise, and violence of action. Okay. So simple enough to rattle out, right? You can find that on all kinds of, of articles and videos out there and everything. Uh, but let's kind of delve into it. And so particularly for our, our purposes and discussions, what I'm going to bring out is, you know, we'll talk about what it is. And as people are learning this and trying to hone their skills, I know you've taught this a lot just in your military career. And even at some of the courses we run together, and uh, me as well, some of the mistakes that we see when people are starting out so that if you're training at home with your buddies, these are some things that you, maybe you can start thinking through and problem solving on your own to help improve your, your skills, right? Right. When you have, you have made the decision that you need to enter into this space, right? You're usually going to do it at a certain point that is a choke point, which is a, could be a doorway or some type of what they call a fatal funnel. And this is where you are most vulnerable, right? And because of that, because like I think you've said before, you got to think about it from the enemy's perspective, right? As he is inside, you don't know where he is, or even if he is there, you don't know. But all you know is that once you cross that threshold, that's where his focus and attention is going to be. And he knows where you're coming in through and can see you quickly. And you don't know where he is just yet until you get in the room and assess and scan. So because of that, speed is is paramount. You have to be able to move into that doorway or to that choke point as fast as you reasonably can, not only so that you don't make yourself an easy target, but so that if you've got people with you, you can get more guns into the room, right? That's kind of what the the purpose of that is, right? Right. And and then also that uh, has to do with an accuracy thing too, when it comes to ending the engagement, you as a responsible gun owner are are responsible for every round that you shoot, Mm -hmm. right? And the effects of every round that you shoot. So we always taught always don't move faster than you can accurately engage. Once your accuracy goes away, like, You're moving too fast. All right. So Mm -hmm. that changes by distance. You can get away with being closer to the target, meaning in a room as moving faster because you can still engage that target. But if you're at a hundred, a hundred yard target or so, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to move as fast and accurately engage that person 
at 100 yards away as you would from five yards, which is normal room distance-ish. Yeah. Yeah. So usually the first thing I'll see when students come through, uh, when they're kind of new at this, is you know, they don't have the footwork down. So they start and they're, they're kind of concentrating on just kind of moving and not really thinking about processing the room. And so they have a tendency to come into the room too slow. Right. Yeah. So when they're starting out, so that's why we're saying, well, that's an element. So you, you, so we say, you know, slow it up to speed it down, kind of like move in through your choke point faster, right. To get into the room, right. And speed, but you don't want to go too fast. And what I'll say is you can only move as fast as your eyes can process the room. Right. Then once you start, once you start seeing people come in the room and they're moving too slow, and then you start saying, you start talking about speed as your element, why it's important and what you want to do. And it's a learning process, right? So then people have, when they're starting out, have a tendency to move too fast to the room. And then that kind of become now that creates a different set of problems. You are moving too slow. That created a vulnerability problem for you. Now you've sped it up, but you've gone too fast. And now you're not able to process the room. And what do we mean when we say, pro- or what do you think I mean when I say process the room? So, I mean, what goes through my mind is, are there any other doorways, any people in the room, any non-combatants? What kind of furniture is going on in there? What's the layout of the room? Does it open into another room? Like So on and so forth. So, I mean, you can go a long way with that. Yeah, exactly. So processing the room is just that there, you know, you, you're coming into a room, you don't know what all is there. And just because you see a person that's in the room doesn't mean that that's a person that needs to be shot, right? Right. So you have to have positive identification of every thing and every person in the room. And you have to make that decision, whether they're a, a, um, either a friendly, hostile, or someone who's neutral, right? Where you don't know if they're hostile or not. You just, you have to make that determination on whether they're armed or present a threat to you, right? And you can't do that if you're sprinting into the room. Right. You know, so then people are kind of confused. Well, it's like, well, you told me to speed up, and then now you're telling me to slow down. So then I usually couch it into this phrase, and I didn't make this up. This is how I learned it, is that it's a controlled hurry. Yeah. Well, I mean, what do you think you, of that? yeah, I, I like controlled hurry, but um, uh, like you only need to get out of the fatal funnel. So that's the only time you should be going faster into the room. Right. Yep. Then you mm-hmm. slow down once you're clear of the fatal funnel. And that in the room clearing scenario, that does a couple of things that allows the guy behind you not to get bogged down and the guy behind him not to get bogged down. So yep. there you're able to get three guns in the doorway as opposed to just one had you slowed down or any of that other stuff gone too fast and then left all of your buddies out hanging. So you wind up going in the room one at a time as opposed to having three points cornered at that instant. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and we're going to see as we go along that these, these elements are related and interrelated. So in that scenario, you just said, you know, you're losing the third element, which is violence of action. So we'll, we'll get to that, that in a second. You could say also speed too, because it mm-hmm. took a split second for you to get yeah. three guns in the doorway versus one gun. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know? Good point. So yep. the speed in that aspect of how fast did it take you to get all sectors of the room covered? Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, let someone think as they're listening to it, you know, we're talking about two man, three man, four man, you know, stuff like that. This is also true even if it's a one man job, you know, a, a concealed carry holder. And again, we're not going to get into whether or not, you know, if you think your home's been compromised and, you know, you drive up to your house, whether or not you should call the cops and stay at a safe distance or go in. We're not talking about that right now. We're just talking about if the decision is made to go in and it's a one man thing, this idea of speed, but doing it in a controlled, a controlled speed still applies, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't, it's not so much that you're worried about other dudes stacking up on you or, or, um, you know, creating that accordion effect because you don't have those behind you, but you still have the issue of when you move into the room, you still can only move as fast as your eyes can process the room. All right. So you have to do it fast to get into the room so that you're, you're not as vulnerable, you know, as a target, as you cross the threshold, but you still don't want to go too fast where you're, I mean, I've had literally where I've put targets up in the deep in a corner and had people move so fast that they're almost running into the target before they can ever really even get their gun up or identify what, what it is that they're running about to run into. Yeah. And that also sounds like a point of domination issue too. Yeah. That's up for a separate discussion. Yeah, that's yeah. That's a separate thing too. All right. So, so that's surprise, right? So that is one of your element. And again, we can blow that out and say that's not just in room clearing. It is that is an element of close quarter battle, and that's going to be relevant and present even if you're outdoors in a rural environment, in a woodland environment, uh, in a parking lot, wherever it is. Those are you. You still will have those issues present to you. They're just going to look a little different. Mm-hmm. All, right. All right, number two. Number two. Surprise. Surprise. What do you, what, now what exactly is, uh, what's the purpose of surprise? Why is that important in close quarter battle? Because it resets the timing of the fight. Okay. Gives you the upper hand. It has the, uh, has the enemy reacting to you instead of you reacting to the enemy. Absolutely. Yeah. That tried and true phrase, action is faster than reaction. So we're already at a disadvantage because we're moving into an area where we're not sure exactly where the bad guy is. So we want to, at least when we do enter, we want it to be a surprise. So like you said, to try to reset that timing so that we can get ahead of time to the best degree possible so that, that we can begin to dominate the engagement, right? Right. And then what does that mean to you or how do you acquire this element of surprise? Already, you can kind of see how speed would help you with surprise, right? Exactly. So that that's that's one of the reasons, like what we're saying, it's it's they're related and interrelated. It's very hard to talk about one without the other because they all are are connected. They're like different sides of the coin. But the goal, like we said, you're trying to catch the en- enemy off guard to deny them the ability to mount a proper defense or mount a proper offense against you or counteract our action. So we want to get as close to them as we can, but put ourselves in an advantageous position 
you know, before they really become aware of us or can mount the gun on us, so to say. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I think a lot of times, and again, I mean, this isn't rocket science, but just breaking it down to me, I think stealth is very, so we talked about how speed can help you with surprise, but I think stealth is an, is an element that we want to maybe spend a little time on too. So stealth is also one of your most, that's your friend that can help you. If they can't hear us or if they can't see us as we're coming up, then the chances swing, the pendulum swings in our favor as far as maintaining that element of surprise. Yes. 100%. Like what, what are some things that you're, that you're thinking of that kind of is going through your mind? Uh, uh, noise for one. Yep. And, uh, using a flashlight always drives me nuts. Uh, and the reason why is you'll have somebody, at least it's been in my case, uh, a lot of the people that I try to teach this stuff to, they'll have the light on, forget to turn it off or want to turn it on when it's not the proper time to turn it on. Mm -hmm. Right. Just because the light works both ways. So it's illuminating what you're seeing, but Mm -hmm. it's also a big fat laser beam pointing right to where you're at. Yeah. If that makes sense. So like everybody knows where you're at as soon as that light comes on. I don't care how far it, uh, let's put it for instance, uh, somebody striking a lighter in the woods at nighttime, Mm -hmm. lighting a cigarette. Mm -hmm. How Mm -hmm. far away can you see that cigarette at night? Uh, yeah, a long way. Right. So a, a flashlight and a cigarette's not even very bright. Now, yeah. now we're talking about a flashlight. So everybody yeah. in two states over can see. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, when you said flashlight, I think about NDs with the flashlight. Yes. Like a yeah, like a negligent discharge. It's a negligent yeah, discharge. Yep. That's exactly what what I'm thinking of. It's like somebody. Hey, you know, we've we've done a episode on low light before and our big thing then was like hey if you don't need the light don't use the light it's like okay that's simple enough but like i've seen (coughs) excuse me a lot of times where someone like they didn't intend to use the light but because their their gear wasn't optimized good for what they were doing right they fat finger it and they accidentally hit the button on the light and here comes the light and there's like oh crap you know and then they turned it off but well it's too late then right oh yeah i did the i did the same thing in afghanistan i had a pressure switch on my rifle and uh we were walking by this mosque and like we had had movement at the mosque and we were up like pretty close to it and it was snow icy everything boy i slipped and busted my ass like no other and I had my thumb on that damn pressure switch. So when my butt hit the ground, the light went off right into the freaking mosque. So like I woke everybody up. I was like, oh, my God, I got chewed out so hard by my uh, uh, squad leader that night. I ripped that thing off and never used it again. So I always uh, rolled the button on the back of it. So I don't use a pressure switch anymore for that reason. It, yeah. So that, well, that's good. So w- that's what we mean by like optimizing your gear. So making sure that, you know, you're, you've got your kit and your gear optimized for what you're doing and that you're used to it. And, and you're trying to cut down the chances of something like that happening. Another thing is, uh, optimizing on the gear is making sure that things are secured properly. So I have seen several times like 
somebody get down and taking cover or somebody's moving, like you've said, like getting tripped up or something, or they've been down and they got a yard sale. There's stuff that's coming off of them that's not secured, right? And so that's why a lot of times, you know, whether training or deployment, you know, you do in the military what they call PCCs, PCIs, you know, pre-combat checks, where part of that is not only just making sure that you got the right kind of gear, but making sure that the stuff is secured appropriately to your person so that you don't have things rattling and shifting out especially when Um, you're running and stuff yeah exactly and uh you know now i think most people have kind of gone to the the camelbacks and uh, as a water source but i'm old enough to remember when that stuff didn't really exist and people still had the canteens and you got somebody who's scurrying around and they got a half empty canteen sloshing around sloshing and sloshing and sloshing and i mean that stuff is loud Mm -hmm. i mean it it can get loud so loose gear things that are rattling things that are falling around things that are that are falling out that are making noise that can give give away and so that actually kind of goes into the next point about hey maybe giving some thought to minimizing your gear you know so thinking about what you have and if you don't need it maybe um you know, maybe not have it on you. Now, sometimes for those who are in the military, that's not, the, there's a difference between that and then what you have to carry because you don't always get a choice in all of that. You know, some of that is dictated to you. There's certain kinds of gears that you're going to be told to carry whether you want to or not, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're, <laughs> especially if you're a private. So, if you're a private. Yeah. Yeah. That you're sucks. pretty much going to get stuck with, uh, you know, the Skedco and all that other stuff. Yeah. you become a human pack wheel. But, you know, when you're thinking about, especially, you know, maybe in law enforcement or even with civilian training and stuff is, is, uh, you know, if you don't need it, you know, give it a second thought, whether you want to put it on, because I'll tell you another thing too, is you get too much stuff. You're still carrying that and, uh, you can fatigue. And when you fatigue, you start making mistakes and you start getting sloppy and you start getting loud, and that can give your position away too. Yeah. Also, footsteps too. It, it kind of cracks you up when you're walking around the woods at night under under night vision or whatever, and you know you can tell who's been doing it a lot and who hasn't because the ones that do it a lot, you tend not to hear their footsteps as much as the ones that sound like they just a baby deer just learning how to walk, or yep. kind of falling yep. all over the place, tripping all over everything. Yep. It's very, uh, very interesting watching that. Yeah, it's uh, we all been there. It's uh, it's all about reps. But yeah. so you you already hit the light discipline one pretty good. So I'm not going to hit that. But uh, noise discipline. I don't. I think you mentioned that, but we didn't. Um, we didn't hit. What exactly is noise discipline? So uh, that could go all the way down to using hands and arms, hand and arm signals. Yep. Also how cognizant you are about foot placement. Like I was talking about just a second ago, that goes, goes into noise too. Um, speaking, right. Uh, nothing higher than a whisper. If you can avoid it, preferably mm-hmm. don't do that and go off hand signals or audible cues, visual cues, um, that kind of yeah. stuff. So it kind of depends on what you've already got for your command and control in place. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, for those of you, of you guys out there that are in the military, I mean, hand and arm signals, that kind of um, different ways of communicating, that's just something you learn pretty much 
uh, in yeah. basic training. Flaming and, rock, uh, buzzsaw, um, like just a lot of those different things you could use as marking um, yeah. or signals. Yeah. So for civilians, if, if you're out there and you're, you're training with some of your buddies, you know, that's something to be cognizant of. You do want to have ways to communicate with each other, but once it's time to get loud, then you can go loud. You know, there, there will come a time where being silent and stealthy is, it's no longer advantageous to you. Mm -hmm. But until that time comes, you do want to keep any kind of chatter down to a minimum. And if you can communicate non-verbally through hand and arm signals, that's a really good way to go. What if you lose, here's a good one, is like, what if they know you're coming? So I did talk about that in the article about like, so we want to try to establish, gain, and maintain the element of surprise. But <clears throat> in a perfect world, <clears throat> you know, that's the case, but you, we don't live in a perfect world. And sometimes the cat gets out of the bag to where maybe they know we're coming, right? So what happens once we've, once you lose the element of surprise, is there any way of coming back from that? Yes. Uh, that brings us to point number three, violence of action. And then that redirects us back to point one, which is also speed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, before we get straight into violence of action, and again, the, when we say the word surprise, you got to understand that's a relative term. So surprise doesn't mean like you bring your mom, you know, your mom and daddy in for their, you know, a surprise anniversary party, right? So to where they have no idea. So yeah, you're never going to be able to regain that degree of surprise, but you can buy yourself maybe a, a couple of seconds or two, and maybe that's all you need because you can deceive or distract the enemy. So even though they know you're there, they still don't know necessarily the timing or the location of the attack, right? Right. So we can do things like that's where you're kind of maybe a delayed entry works, right? Um, so we're up, but we don't go in right away or a faint attack or we try to cause draw their attention away through some type of diversion or things mm -hmm. like that and then you go get them to skip a skip a beat mm -hmm. and then you go you go on the offbeat you know that's probably the best thing that you could do i would say in that situation right yeah. right and then that's also done uh, uh like i was saying by violence of action but like there's grades of violence of action. So let's say, uh, there's a closed door on the room, correct? Mm -hmm. So you hit the door with, uh, a donker or a donk, mm -hmm. knock mm -hmm. the door open. That's violence of action, but is it surprising? Yes. Right. Yeah. So let's say you've lost the element of surprise by hitting it with a donk. You don't want to go in. Then you throw a flashbang in there. Right. Mm -hmm. That's another step up on the violence of action scale, but it's regaining your surprise. Right, right. It's a different kind of saying? surprise. So yeah. mm -hmm. It's a different kind of surprise. So you're still, um, and, and then you can go all the way up to a frag if you're talking about military dudes or uh, mortar attack pre going in yeah. and assaulting through. Like there, yeah. there's, you know, different ways you can go with that. Yeah. Uh, what about civilians? What do you, do you have anything on that? Uh, the distraction thing, uh, yeah. like throw something into the house. Yeah. Like through the doorway first. Um, yeah. You know, th 
I'm not. That's off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, no, I know. A bad I know. Issue We're t- and, or anything. Yeah, but, you know, it just there's a distraction element, right? Which is yeah. what the flashbang is meant to do. So what's mm-hmm. you know what's the difference there? We're not saying it's a it's a uh, optimum situation, but it's like what else are you going to do? You know, as a civilian, you don't have a frag or you don't have a flashbang, you don't have that kind of stuff available to you. So you just have to do the best you can. So whether or not it's throwing something into the room or waiting or just throwing the door open and waiting, you know, I've, I've seen that too mm-hmm. uh, in environments, you know, again, is it going to work? Well, I mean, who knows, but it's, it's better than nothing. You just have to do the best you can with that situation. You know, it's kind of a, it right, is what it is. Wait for somebody else to do it, you know. Yeah. In the yeah. civilian standpoint, so yeah, I mean, those are your two options. Let's let's delve uh, a little bit deeper into violence of action. So when so violence of action, let's say, well, what are we talking about there? So that's the principle where we're trying to neutralize the threat as soon as possible. Like the longer the thing draws out, the less uh, advantageous it is for you. Right? There's a yeah, greater the less shots you wind up getting. Yeah, yeah. Just put it that way. Yeah. So violence of action to me, you know, if I, if I had to pick one word to sum that up, I would say dominance, right? You are violence of action is about physically and psychologically dominating the threat, right? To prevent them from defending their position, their position or mounting a counterattack against you. So that's, that's the name of the game. And I always, I always think of, um, you know, when I was a, a prosecutor and I was, uh, I would handle like, man, I've, I've seen video, like whether jailhouse fights or, you know, things caught on a security camera of plenty of examples of violence of action where I would see the little dude beat the ever life out of some bigger, stronger foe. And it was through violence of action. It was like, once he did the initial hit, he continued to hit and continued to hit and continued to hit to where he was dominating the guy, the bigger guy, because the bigger guy couldn't even get his wits around him because his brain's too busy being sloshed around in his skull. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just think about if you've ever watched a UFC fight or a box match and you see one of those, those fighters, that's just, just launching the salvo of this punch. It's this wave after punch. You know what I mean? Like you can literally just, he's just beating this guy to a pulp. I mean, that's what I kind of think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would, uh, I would say the same thing. Definitely. Yeah. And so, and for that reason, you know, that's why we're talking about getting, and that, that goes back to your speed, right? Moving through that choke point, getting your dudes in the room or even if it's just you, getting you into the room, processing the room as fast as you can so that you can bring your your violence to bear to where he's dealing with the situation instead of you dealing with him. So let's talk about a couple of kind of mistakes that you've seen, like when it comes to like things that will cause you to lose violence of action. And you've got, kind of already mentioned one of them. but uh, With losing violence of action, most of the time thinking two shots will do. Mm. Like, yeah, a lot of people go in and it's just ingrained in them to shoot two shots at every target that's that presents. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I would say fire till the target goes down. So, well, that's a good point. Yeah. So that's one. Yeah. Because you've you've initiated 
the the attack. And so you have the momentum on your side. And so if you stop too soon, right, you can lose that momentum. Right. right? Especially and, and if there's other dudes somewhere where you don't know where they're at and or that guy's just not down yet. Right? Yeah, that's what that's what I was going to say is a lot. If you're used to firing two shots, firing two shots, firing two shots, and then, you know, you do that same thing, fire two shots and you keep going and that dude's not incapacitated yet. Like you just got shot in the back. One I've seen, and again, I'm kind of talking about new people who are new to it, who are trying to learn it for the first time. So a failure to commit, right? Like a failure to go in. So I've seen where um where they've kind of stopped, they they've kind of are crossing into the doorway and they mm-hmm. see the threat. And instead of pushing into the room to let the other guys, they stop right, and they're just right. duking it out there. And the other the other op four or whatever is barricaded. So he, he ain't coming out and you ain't going to hit him. And it's just, it's kind of like a standoff. And now you've got all the other dudes bunching up on you and they can't get into the room and hit that guy at a different angle where he's exposed and create a dilemma for him because you you're blocking the room. Well, that, that goes back to the two is one, uh, one is none. Yeah. Yeah. And now again, before we start getting people rattling this off, because I was I was teaching a class and we had a, a retired sergeant major that was in there, and uh, you know he and I he and I got to talking about that because he was like, yeah, when I first started out, everything was about dynamic entry, getting as much guns into the room as we can, and he's like, now they've gone away from that, and now they're trying to say, I guess his catchphrase, he said what they were talking about is leave the leave if you can leave the brass outside the door. So he was saying that basically, if you can see the threat inside the room, just engage from there and don't go in and put everybody at risk. And that's where, go ahead if you want to say okay. something Okay, so that. I understand that, but is that the only guy in the only room in the building? Right. And how do you know? Because if you leave the brass outside the door on the initial, uh, on the initial contact, Wherever that is, it's probably going to be most likely at your first choke point. Mm-hmm. As you breach the doorway, you've lost balance of action. So, like, are, are they going to come down and say, hey, I'm here? Yeah, yeah. Start right. shooting you. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. if you don't go into that structure, like, yeah, that's fine if it's a one room, one doorway building. But I don't know of any buildings in America that are like that. Right. And yeah. there's definitely not a lot of them overseas like that yeah. because they section so, everything off. Yeah. So you have to continue through the doorway to get to the other doors or else that building is not clear. Yeah. Like you're bringing it in a barricaded situation. Like that's a barricade shooter situation yeah. versus inner clear room. There's yeah. two, two different elements that both require CQB, but they're not, they're two different elements. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. And so that's, and I've talked to some law enforcement. I'm not saying that every single police agency does it that way, but that's kind of, uh, as I'm getting out there on the circuit, there's a lot of SWAT guys that are telling me like things are kind of going that way. And I, I and I'm kind of of the mind, same mind of you that, yeah, I mean, that might be okay. And it's not saying that there's never times that you would do that, but you also have to think about the overall 
the overall mission constraint is also going to, in my opinion, dictate how you're going, going, to, en- going to enter, right? And what I mean by that is that, you know, some units, like they might get tasked with a seize and hold, right? So that means you're literally going to have to go in, clear each room, move in there. But you or you've got some kind of search and destroy where you're literally clearing everything out building by building. But then you have things that are extraction missions, right? So you might be going in to rescue somebody. Well, um, I mean, very rarely is there too. a hostage situation where the hostage is sitting sitting tied up in the middle of the room with nobody around them. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like. And they're not going to be in a one room <laughs> yeah, building. I know, so yeah. like, I don't understand. Like if somebody could explain that to me, that would be very helpful. But I don't, I don't, I, I just, I don't have that. I don't see. Yeah. So I watched a, uh, a hostage rescue um, that was done by uh, super cool guys mm-hmm. uh, in a, in a military branch. And mm-hmm. They did a SIMO breach on a 2,000-square-foot-plus compound, had mm-hmm. the top floor and the bottom floor cleared, cleared, and them moving the, um, the hostage out mm-hmm. of that compound in 32 seconds total from touchdown. Dang. So for you to not go in and clear, mm-hmm. like it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm I'm with you on that. So we could we could spend some time on that, but let's uh let's move on to some other stuff um that are pretty important. And I don't I don't know if necessarily we could just stick this in the uh violence of action bucket, but I would definitely say it's definitely best practices that especially if you're a civilian or w- regardless of what you do for a living, um it's th- this is something you always need to work on or uh making sure your weapon skills are on point. Right. That's a, so, yeah, that's a fundamental task. Making sure, you know, that you're not fl- flagging dudes, that your finger is off the trigger uh, and the weapons on safe until you're ready to engage the target, which goes back to making sure there's PID, which goes back to making sure that you're not moving faster than your eyes can process the room. But all of that you know, traces its way back to weapons handling skills. But then also, how about this? Having a plan for how you're going to handle uh, malfunctions and things like that. What do you think right. about well, that? That goes straight back to the big five that we did a podcast on last go round. Mm-hmm. Um, go back and refresh yourself on that issue uh, yeah. of our podcast, and that'll cover that whole discussion. You know, hopefully, if you're maintaining, you've got a quality weapon and you're maintaining it. You know, you're you are mitigating the risk of a catastrophic malfunction that would take you out of the fight. But that said, it's still a me- mechanical implement, and that stuff can still happen. So, you know, the question is, if that occurs, if you're moving by yourself, now that that goes into well, now you're going to have to transition to something different, either your hands or whatever. You know, but if you've got buddies that are part of your team, then do you have a plan of how is that going to be hap- you know, happened if your gun goes down, you yeah. know, how, how does the procedure go then? What happens? I, I mean, go to the center of the room off the wall where the rest of your guys can go past you, you take a knee and deal with the malfunction. 
That would be one way of doing it. Yeah. And that yeah, is what we would call an SOP, which stands exactly. for standard, standard operating, operating procedure. procedure. That's I right. like it when you lead <laughs> me into these things like this. It's so easy. Yeah. So again, you want to have that figured out before you go into the room or before you even come to the structure, right? That stuff is hashed out on the front end and it's trained so that it's just automatic and nobody trained freaks out. And then rehearsed before rehearsed. you do it. That's a really good way for if you've got a, a little training group that you got that you guys make sure that you're working those things out and that you have a plan ahead of time of what happens if my gun goes down and I'm trying to remedy this, who's going to pick up the six and continue on while I get myself. And what are you going to say? Yeah, How exactly. are you going to signal to the rest of your group that uh, you're ineffective at yeah. the moment? All right, man. So we hit uh, we hit shot uh, targeting. Um, I wrote on. I'm not going to really hit that here, but I hit it up on the um, on the on the article. But there's kind of two schools of, t- of thought regarding a targeting shot placement. So there's that's what I mean by like the two schools of thought. So hey, you know, headshots are the way to go because you could have people wearing body armor. So you know, most people are trained to shoot center mass because that's where the biggest target is. But now you got someone wearing body armor. So that means that even if they are or you catch them somewhere where you wound them, but they're not incapacitated immediately, there's still the chance that they could counterattack. That's yeah, that's good. But then I kind of like, you know, your take on it, like shoot till the threat goes down, just shoot till it goes down. Right. And that gets past the, when you're training, you know, I get the two shot things, but sometimes you might want to throw in reps where you're, you're throwing more than just two shots, you know? Where yeah. You're and I mean, a lot of times, a lot of times that's done. That's a conservation, conservation of the ammo thing, as opposed mm-hmm. to a actual practical drill of what's actually going to be happening in that moment. Yeah. Um, But it it gets kind of tagged on by, you know, uh, USPSA matches, IDPA IDPA matches, all these competition matches. It's two shots per target, Mm -hmm. um, given whether you have hits or not. Um, So some of them you can shoot more than two shots, blah, blah, blah. But uh, that's kind of where that came in. And, uh, yeah, shoot till the target goes down. So that's a really good point. So I think that's – that kind of plagues our industry as a whole where people do things and it was never explained why we're doing it. So then it just kind of becomes a dogma, like the two shot things. Well, we're already, all right, I'm going to hit two shots and I'm going to go to my next target, hit two shots. And I'm thinking about, well, why am I just shooting two shots? Well, if I don't know, then maybe I'm going to just train myself to where I'm automatically, that's all I'm doing and that's not the right answer. The answer is, well, well, why am I doing that? Oh, it's to conserve ammo or it's a control measure, right? If we're running four dudes in a live fire drill, you know, we need to have some cutoff point, right? So we're going to say, hey, every target gets two shots, right? Instead of t- everybody just blasting off and yeah. it's a control measure, right? But there has to be, you have to at least cognitively be aware of that so that you don't get into creating that habit because you think that's what you're supposed to do. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. That, that, that makes, uh, makes pretty good sense to okay. me. Anyway, well, but. I'll take pretty good. So, all right. Well, 
So just to kind of recap, we talked about what close quarter battle is, and it's a lot bigger than I think you know most of us are accustomed to thinking. It's not just room clearing, even though those are what we use for our examples, but we understand that we're, these principles are in play, whether we're in a parking lot, whether we're in a rural area, it uh, doesn't just mean clearing rooms. And then we talked about the three elements, speed, surprise, violence of action, how they're related, how they're interrelated. And regardless of the, your method or your techniques and things that you utilize, those are principles that are going to be at play at all times. They're just going to look different based on your situation your unit, your department, or whether you're by yourself or whatever, but those those things are still going to be there. And there is tons, and then we kind of talked about some of the uh, best practices and also some of the uh, kind of mistakes when people are starting out that if you're not aware of those, you can kind of start tightening up your shot group, so to say, on that in your own training. So there's a lot we didn't cover. Yeah, footwork, points of domination, like yeah. uh, a whole whole host of red zones, uh, yeah. shot drill. Um, but yeah, like there's a lot. On down the list. So. Yeah, so if you're interested in that, maybe uh, go over to www.baritisdefense.com and jump on a class with us and we'll uh, – we get down in the weeds on that kind of stuff. So, um, hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, tell a buddy about it. And if you would, go uh, leave us a review on Apple. Give us a five-star. Let us know what you liked. And if you have any qu- that would mean a great deal to us. And if you got yeah. any questions, just email them to info at com, and we will get them answered for you. So that's all I got. You got anything? No, I'm pretty much talked out for today. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I don't know about that, but we'll see. see. All right. We'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you next time. So um, this is Mark and Alex signing off. And until next time. Peace.